Let's pray and then let's dig into the word. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you and praise you so much for this wonderful time of worship as we get to gather together and sing praises to your name. We can worship in giving, Lord, but also celebrate the fellowship of of your people here at Twin Rivers. Thank you, Father, for those who have joined us in membership, Lord, and have a desire to uh, fulfill the great commission of making disciples who know you and make you known. Uh, Father, as we transition to your word, we pray that you'd open our hearts and that you'd open our minds, that you would guide us and lead us in the truth of your word, and we thank you for it, and we praise you for it, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. What we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ, we ask that you make us. Amen. Uh, There are a number of different ways to share your testimony. Uh, Some years back, a church decided to do something creative. Now, I don't know if this was their idea or not, but uh, they invited some members in the church who had received Christ as their Savior and Lord, and it invited them to do what are called cardboard cardboard box testimonies. Um, And after they had posted it online, just as they did alongside of their sermon, before they knew it, it went viral some years back. If you want to do a cardboard testimony, you only need a few things. Just need a piece of cardboard, front and the back, a marker, and a testimony of how Christ is continuing to work in your life through the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And so if you do a cardboard box testimony, what you do on the front of it is you write in just a few words of your life before Christ, your need for Christ, your struggle with sin. If you flip it around on the other side, in just a few words, you write down the kind of change that Christ has brought to your life through salvation in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. And I wanted to begin this morning by sharing some of those with you. Uh, These are all actual ones. The first man who, who came up, he had this on his box. It said, Christian men seemed weak. He flipped it around and he said, now I am one. Uh, Another person came up and declared, was addicted to meth, and on the other side, now addicted to him. Uh, A couple came up with a special needs child, and uh, they shared on their box, predicted to die at two, and then on the other side, will be three next week, and then it said, recipients of God's hope, strength, and continued peace. Another man came up on his box, it read, God robber. On the other side, it said, God led giver. Uh, Another young lady had come up, and on her box, she wrote, Sideline Christian. She flipped it around, and on it was written, going to be a missionary. Uh, Another came up, and uh, a couple, and they said on on their box, we have no children, and then flipped it around and said, God has given us hundreds of youth to serve at our church every week. Uh, Another couple came up, their box read, sinful divorce. They flipped it around and said, God restore." Another couple came up with their box. It said, three stillborn babies in heaven. They flipped it around and it said, living with joy until reunited again. So many good ones. Let me read you this next one. Uh, A lady had come up. She had written on hers, Jack Daniels was my medicine. She flipped it around and said, Jesus is my healer. If you had a cardboard box testimony to share, just a few words of your life before Christ, and you were to flip it around and share how Christ continues to work in your heart, in your life, what would your cardboard testimony say? You know, whether you share your testimony on a cardboard box or you share your testimony through a conversation, we're reminded this morning that all of us have been called to share our testimonies if we're believers through the waters of baptism. That's what I want to take some time to talk on this morning from the book of Acts, chapter 8. I want to invite you to verses 26 to 40. As you make your way there in your Bibles, uh, this week and last, we've been talking about a two-part series that we've entitled The Ordinances of the Church. And biblically speaking, there are only two. You have the ordinance of the Lord's table or communion and the ordinance of baptism. Last time we were together, we talked about what an ordinance is. It's a command given by Christ to not just observe the Lord's table and be baptized, but what it serves as is a a visible symbol of an invisible reality. 
Last time we talked, we talked about the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, how the bread and the cup serve as visible symbols of the invisible reality of our salvation through the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. The bread is a symbol of his body that was broken. The cup serves as a symbol of his blood that was shed for us. When it comes to the waters of baptism and the ordinance of baptism, the waters of baptism serve, as we're going to see, as a symbol, a a visible symbol of the invisible reality of our salvation and our union with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And what we're going to see today is that the waters of baptism actually picture the grave. When someone goes down in the waters, they are going down in the grave, being united with Christ in his death and his burial. And when they come out, they are united with Christ as a picture of that in his resurrection. And so what we're going to do this morning is talk about what does the Bible have to say about the ordinance of baptism? Now, as we come together as a church, I know in a church our size, there, I'm sure there are different folks from different backgrounds, different experiences, different denominations that you grew up in, perhaps even experiences that you've had. But I want you to just put aside tradition for a moment and consider what does God's word have to say about the subject of baptism. And so as we walk through our text, would you stand in honor of the reading of the word, Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse... Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he rose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace the queen of the Ethiopians who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he reads was this. Uh, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from him, from the earth, excuse me. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now when they had come out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. He went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. The word of the Lord, you all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. This morning together, I want to take some time to talk about the ordinance of baptism and what the word of God has to tell us about it. What do we learn about the ordinance of baptism? The first thing we're going to look at in verses 26 to 36, which is the large portion of our text, is the motivation for baptism. What we're going to see in this first portion is that the motivation for baptism is genuine salvation. In verses 26 to 36, we get to read about the testimony of a man who is unnamed, a man who is simply described as an Ethiopian eunuch, and yet God had a divine appointment with him on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza as he was heading home to Ethiopia. And God had called a man by the name of Philip to deliver a message about the person and work of Jesus Christ as he's reading through Isaiah 53. And so as we consider this man's testimony, the motivation for his baptism is indeed salvation, genuine salvation. The first part of his testimony, we learn about it in verse 26 concerning the command given to Philip. The command given to Philip, we read about that. Verse 26 says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem 
to Gaza. Uh, first, I want to take a look at the context of the command. Uh, the text begins with the word now. That's a timing marker. And what we learn in the immediate context of chapter 8 is that Philip, he's been ministering in Samaria. Now, it's helpful to give you a greater context, not just in chapter 8, but the greater context of the book of Acts. If I could sum up the book of Acts for you, it would be found in Acts 1.8. Acts is all about the gospel. After the Holy Spirit comes upon the 120 in the upper room and fills them and indwells them, they are empowered to go and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And what the book of Acts is all about is the gospel spreading in the first seven chapters throughout Jerusalem. And then throughout the rest of the book, it spreads to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so if you ever want a good outline of the book of Acts, take a look at Acts 1.8. It says, but you shall receive power. Jesus gives this reminder and this command before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. After he has died and risen from the dead and, and has appeared to many, he gathers his disciples and he says, before I leave, I want you to stay here because you're going to receive power by the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's the immediate city. In Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Well, in the first seven chapters, the gospel is spreading throughout Jerusalem. If you recall, a guy by the name of Peter, who in the gospels always put his foot in his mouth. This guy ends up being called back to the ministry. He's restored by Jesus himself, and he starts preaching before these crowds boldly and courageously. And we learn in the first seven chapters, 3,000 come to faith, and then 5,000 come to faith. And then something happens in chapter 8 to fulfill Acts 1-8. The gospel doesn't just spread throughout Jerusalem. It ends up going through the greater region of Judea and even to Samaria that the Jews didn't even like and to the ends of the earth. Now, I want you for a moment to, to, to if you even know the book of Acts, to block it out of your mind. And let me ask you this question. What would motivate these Jewish believers who have accepted Christ as their Savior and Lord as thousands upon thousands are coming to Christ in Jerusalem to leave Jerusalem, to uproot, and to start sharing the gospel as missionaries in places throughout Judea and then Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. What would motivate them to do that? Do you think in Jerusalem, in the church, they, I mean, this is the early church, they haven't been saved very long, and they come around and say, okay, who wants to go out to Galatia? Anybody? All right, who else? How about any volunteers to go out to Achaia, Corinth, and Athens? Does anyone here want to go to Rome? Perhaps maybe someone who wants to go all the way to the ends of the known world in Spain. Uh, they didn't ask that question. It's kind of like for me, if today I told you, I asked the elders, I said, I want you guys to lock this church down and you don't let anyone out until we have some missionaries who volunteer to go to Mexico and Canada and China and Cuba and all these other countries. We say, we're not leaving here until you commit to go to these specific nations. You know what happened in Acts 8? In order for Acts 1-8 to be fulfilled, persecution. And persecution, the pressure that was added to the church was the motivation for the gospel to spread. And they weren't asked if they would go to these places. They were scattered to go to these places. And one of the men who was scattered was a guy by the name of Philip. We differentiate Philip the evangelist from Philip the disciple. And we were first in, introduced to Philip the evangelist in Acts chapter 6 verse 5 as one of the seven deacons. And what we learn about Philip is not only is he a deacon in the church, but he's an evangelist to the lost. I think that's a great example for us to follow. I think if there is an example for us to follow as Christians is that we would be a servant of the local church, but as we have opportunity, we would be an evangelist to the lost. And, and Philip ends up in Samaria in chapter 8, and because the church is scattered, he begins to preach, and he begins to see great fruit. I mean, he's preaching to multitudes. We're talking about villages in Samaria that are packed with people, and he's preaching Christ and him crucified, and these multitudes believe, and we learn, are therefore baptized. Well, as he's having the successful ministry in Samaria, we pick up in our text in verse 26, and it says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. 
Well, listen, he's having a successful ministry. If, if people are coming to faith, are believing and being baptized, why doesn't he continue there? And not only do we see the context, but we see the content of the command. It says, arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert. And so he's been ministering in these crowded villages of Samaria, and God says, I don't want you to just preach Christ and him crucified to the multitudes. I want you to have a conversation with the one. And he's going to have a conversation with an Ethiopian eunuch. I want to pause here for a moment because there's some takeaway here for us, and it's a reminder that it's not whether or not you're preaching to multitudes or you're preaching to just one in a conversation, but whether you're being faithful to where you're called. And God has called each one of us to share our testimony to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth and to meet the people that we have in our circles of influence where they are at. And there are some people that only you can reach that I can't reach. Those among your family members or your friends, those who are your neighbors, those who are your coworkers, those you come into contact with that you have a unique influence with. And the question I just have to ask us is, are we being faithful where we're at and where we have been called? And so uh, the angel of the Lord appears to him and, and he says to him, I want you to go on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. Uh, leave this busy village and go to this desolate Road and there's not going to be many people. And the angel doesn't tell him why. And what we get to see is that he obeys. Verse 27, it says, so he arose and went. Have you ever been uprooted and called out to leave where you're at and go somewhere else? And you're saying, God, I don't know what you're doing. Ever been lost your job or found yourself moving to a new location? And you thought to yourself, I don't know how all of this is working together. He's called out, he goes to the desert, he arose and went, and then it says, behold. One of my favorite words in scripture is behold. And the reason is because whenever you see the word behold, it's an invitation for the reader to step into the shoes of the individual. And so you and I are invited to step into the shoes of Philip here and head to this desolate road from Jerusalem to Gaza where no one is around and behold, there is a man from Ethiopia. Who would have saw that coming? And you get to picture it, you get to see it, and, and first we get to see, first and foremost, he, he's a foreigner, at least for, by Jewish standards. It says, and behold, a man of Ethiopia. Uh, Ethiopia here is speaking of the ancient nation of Nubia, also known as Cush. Uh, it would be located north of modern-day Ethiopia, but this is a man from Ethiopia. And then it describes him, this foreigner, he is a eunuch of great authority. Uh, a eunuch was a castrated male. And those who were castrated males uh, f- were castrated for a purpose. They demonstrated their loyalty to the kingdom. If you were going to be castrated, you were willing to say, hey, I'm all in. You can trust me. And so certainly he was a trusted individual. And it says a eunuch of great authority under Candace. And so he had been appointed um, by Candace the queen. We don't know if Candace is her actual name or her title. But it says, under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, and he had charge over all the treasury. And so he's an Ethiopian eunuch. He is a powerful man who's been delegated great authority. And it says he he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So we're introduced to this man. Number one, behold, this is a foreigner, at least by Jewish standards. Secondly, he is a worshiper. He has come all the way to Jerusalem, traveled you know, over 200 miles to make this journey from where he's at in Ethiopia to Jerusalem to go worship the Lord. Now, in Deuteronomy, we learn that if you were a eunuch, you couldn't be a full-fledged Jewish proselyte. You could be a God-fearer. And so perhaps this Ethiopian eunuch is a God-fearer. Regardless of who he is, we know that he cared enough about his spiritual life to make this journey all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. And as he's traveling back, he obviously has not figured out things yet because he's reading a scroll from Isaiah 53 and he's trying to figure out who is this talking about. Is it talking about the prophets speaking about himself or is he talking about someone else? And so we get to read here that he is a foreigner. He is, um, he is 
a worshiper and he also is a learner. It says, verse 28, he was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. And so first we get to see the command of his testimony. The command not even given to him. A command given to a man he's never met and does not know. A man by the name of Philip. (laughs) You can't help but read a text like this or the entirety of the book of Acts and stand back in awe and wonder at the sovereignty of God over salvation. Isn't it neat to know that God in his sovereignty has pursued this man and is going to draw him to himself and has set up a divine appointment with him and Philip. What a wonderful reminder for us to consider that we always need to be prepared and we always need to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. If ever there is an opportunity to share our faith or to ask someone, do you understand what you're reading when you're opening the word? If we were to give you a Bible, would you actually open it and read it because we would love to gift you one? To simply have conversations about God's word with others because we never know when that a divine appointment has been offered. Are we ready and faithful to do that when we've been called? And so the first part of his testimony is not even related to him. It's a command given to Philip. And so I wanted you to just for a moment consider your testimony and, and ask you, who are those people that God sovereignly used in your salvation story in order to draw you to himself. Make that part of your testimony. When you share about how God drew you to himself, maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a Sunday school teacher, maybe it was a friend at school, maybe it was a family member, maybe it was a co-worker who, who talked to you about the Lord or gave you a Bible, or maybe even a stranger on the street who passed you a tract or shared the gospel with you or said, I've been praying for you. Who are those people who God has used within your salvation story to draw you to himself? And so first we see the command given to Philip concerning his testimony, but secondly, the conversation that he has. Verse 30 says, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. I don't know how long Philip's been out there on this journey. He had to make his way from Samaria down to Jerusalem, and then he's got this long journey to take from Jerusalem to to Gaza on this desolate road. But he finally sees him, he runs to him, and he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and he asks this probing question, do you know what you are reading? Sometimes you suppose someone's reading the Bible, you think to yourself, they must know what they're reading there. (laughs) What an opportunity to ask probing questions as we have opportunity to share our faith as God leads. And then we hear his answer, and he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And what he's basically answering with that question, what he's saying there with that question is he's presenting an invitation, and he asked Philip to come and sit with him. If you had an opportunity to sit with someone and They asked you, what does this mean? Would you be able to take some time and sit with them and share with them an answer? I love it if a child should ever come to you and say, hey, uh, what does this mean? Uh, One day, a couple weeks back, I guess my wife was talking to the girls about the attributes of God. And one of our girls asked me, how can God be one and three at the same time? What an opportunity to sit down and talk to her through the mystery of the Trinity and the beauty of who God is. And so when someone asks you to sit down with them, are you ready and prepared to give an answer? And if you don't have an answer, you can always say, hey, I'll get back to you tomorrow. Let me dig into the word. Let me consult some resources and then I'll get back to you. And then it says, how can I, unless someone guides me, he invites him to come down, and the conversation continues with an interpretation, but let's first consider the revelation. It says, the place in Scripture which read was this. This is Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. Who is the servant in Isaiah, as you read throughout Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who is the servant who was led as a sheep to the slaughter? Who was this servant who, as a lamb before its shearers, is silent? Not only was he led as a sheep to to his death, to his slaughter, but he was a lamb who stood in silence in the midst of injustice. He opened not his mouth, and his humiliation, his justice, was taken away. 
Not only did he stand in silence in the midst of injustice, but he stood humiliated in the face of justice. And then it says, who will declare his generation? Who will speak up on this, on this? For his life is taken from the earth. And here's the interpretation. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? Now, folks had read Isaiah 53, certainly. Folks have read about the suffering servant here before, but it was almost unheard of that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. They pictured him as a conquering king, that he would deliver them, at least in the first century, from Roman oppressive rule. And so they were expecting a conquering king to come through. Yeah, Jesus would come as a conquering king the second time, but the first time he came as a suffering servant. He's talking about Jesus, and the man asked him, who is he talking about, him or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth. I love that statement. Are we ready to open our mouth and declare Jesus to those who are ready to hear about him? He opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. They don't have the New Testament yet, right? We just got the Old Testament. We don't detach from the Old Testament. The Old Testament proclaims Christ and him crucified. That's just the shadow. Christ is the substance. And all throughout Scripture, the law and the prophets are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Philip has an opportunity to connect the dots and says, this is Jesus. Who's the suffering servant? Who is the sheep who goes silent in the face of injustice and is brought to the slaughter. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so it says, Philip opened his mouth, preached Jesus to him. Verse 36, now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Why would the man say what hinders me from being baptized? Well, because he had experienced a genuine salvation. You believe and then are baptized. And so what we get to see in these verses, verses 26 to 36, is the motivation for baptism is genuine salvation. When you are converted, when you receive faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, the next step is simply to get baptized and make a public profession of faith that this is what Jesus has done in my life. And what an opportunity it is to do that. And so I want to encourage us as a church that, that that which would motivate us to be baptized and to step out in obedience would be a genuine salvation, a genuine conversion, trusting in Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. What's the application? Believe and be baptized. Now, baptism is not a requirement for salvation. But baptism is a requirement for obedience to God. When we read about a, a baptism, it's not an option that the Christian believer is given. It's an obligation that we have to declare what Christ has done in our lives and transforming us in our union with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so the proper application would be first and foremost that if you don't have a testimony of faith, to get one. And the way that you get one is by coming to Jesus and admitting your need for him. Saying, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. The root cause of my sin is a rebellious heart. And I've been born with this sin nature. But I believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be in scripture. That he's the one who died and rose and offers salvation as a free gift to anyone who will receive it. I confess Jesus as my Savior and as my Lord. The invitation, if you haven't trusted in Christ, is to come to him, is to believe in him, to follow him, to make him your Savior, and to receive forgiveness of sins. You can do that right now. You can say that prayer in your heart and invite him in and say, God, this is my testimony. I was blind, but because of Jesus, now I see and I've received forgiveness of sins. The first invitation is to believe. The second invitation, if you have believed and you have experienced genuine salvation, is that you would be motivated to therefore be baptized. Now, I want to uh, just be very specific about what that looks like. And, and first, by, by 
inviting us to overcome common excuses when it comes to baptism. Uh, The first excuse I'd like to share with you is I just don't like to be in front of people. I don't want to stand up and and I I, I don't know if I'm going to say the right thing. I don't want to share my testimony in front of people. I have a fear of public speaking in general. I don't want to be in front of people. But Matthew 10, verses 32 to 33 says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. We're encouraged that, that if we have believed, it's not about us in the baptism. It's glorifying God in obedience to what God has called us to do when we believe and are therefore baptized. Uh, second uh, common excuse to overcome is uh, no, I'm too young or I'm too old. The first one is, is I'm too young. Now, I completely understand parents who want to make, work with their children and say, hey, Uh, at a certain point, we want to make sure that this salvation is genuine because a genuine salvation is the motivation for baptism. Uh, But there are some folks, even pastors I've chatted with over the years who would say, I don't baptize any child who's younger than 13. Others who will put another age date on that. And that's understandable and they can hold to their convictions. But this morning, I would like to suggest this. I've talked to folks who are five years old, and I've talked to folks who are 60 years old, and in those conversations, I've learned it doesn't matter if you're five or 60, I can discern whether or not you've truly trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord. As we have a conversation, you can't fake Christianity. You can't fake the fact that Christ has come into your life. Now, you want to share your faith, you want to get baptized when you can share your testimony, And so when you come of age and you can share your testimony, that's when we... Now, you may have been saved at five. If you are not ready to share your testimony and you don't understand the significance of baptism, then hold off on that. But when it's time and you know in your heart of hearts, hey, I believe, I've trusted in Christ as my Savior and Lord, basically what the Ethiopian eunuch says, what hinders me from getting baptized. Exercise discernment. Make those decisions if you're a child with your parent and, and they can have that conversation with you or come and see a pastor and we'll have that conversation with you. But if you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, what hinders you from being baptized? Now, sometimes what we'll do in a church or, uh, is we'll say you can't get baptized until we bring you through this catechism or we bring you through uh, this discipleship plan. You don't need to do that. You believe and you get baptized. Now, do we want to know if your faith is genuine? Yes. Do we bring you through a discipleship process? Yes. Is it okay to do that? Yes. But the Bible says what hinders us from being baptized? We believe and are baptized. I'm too young. The other one is I'm too old. Uh, When I was was in church as a, I don't know how old I was, nine or 10 years old, I still remember the pastor was preaching on baptism. And at the end of the service, he did an altar call and he said, if you want to accept Christ, come on up. Or if you want to be baptized, come on up. And I knew I hadn't had a believer's baptism at that point. And so I still remember feeling like God was calling me up front for, for whatever reason, I did not come up. And I said, I'm not coming up to the front. I, I felt the Lord really pushing me. There was a moment where I said, oh, I'm almost out. And I'll tell you, throughout my middle school years, throughout my high school years, I got to college, and I remember they were t- preaching on baptism again, and I thought, I'm too old. <laughs> I'm a college guy. I should have I got baptized years ago. But the reality is, you're not too old. Uh, we uh, were planning on having uh, Ron, who's going to be uh, baptized next week. Next week, we have a baptism um, he's 90 years old. He's going to be baptized. Um, we may not be able to do it next week. We may have to do it a little bit later just because he, he had a, a complication. But nevertheless, he's going to get baptized. And so you look at a guy like Ron and you think to yourself, what's hindering me from getting baptized? You know, what's my excuse? The truth is we're never too young and we're never too old. And then the third one is I'm afraid of the water. Can I tell you, this is a real one. I've baptized one person in particular who was deathly afraid of the water simply because she, had, she almost died as a child, almost drowned, and it took some work. And we had conversations about it, but eventually I said, you're going first, and we're, we'll dunk you, and I better believe we're going to pull you back up again, and we got her through that. But uh, we're reminded, if you have fear of those things, we can work with you. We'll talk with you. We won't sprinkle you. We're going to immerse you. 
But we, as we do, uh, we're reminded that Christ will get us through it. And so just some common excuses. So believe and be baptized. Overcome those common excuses. And then thirdly, if I could add this, glorify God in your testimony. How do you write your own testimony, whether it's a cardboard testimony or a conversation that you have with others or if you do a video and you share your testimony for a baptism how does it look like to do a testimony first thing i'd invite you to do is write down your testimony whether you're doing it for a baptism or you're simply called to share your faith with others write it down it goes a long ways to write out your testimony the second thing is rehearse your testimony Take time to share your testimony with someone in the church. Share it with your spouse, a family member, or a friend, and rehearse that testimony. And then thirdly, take time to share your testimony when you have the opportunity to do so. Share it with those in your circles of influence. Share it with family members, friends, coworkers. And when someone asks you a question, take time to share your faith with them. Uh, I feel like it's a precious time in our children's lives because we've got a, a, our oldest is five years old. And I accepted Christ somewhere around six or seven. I'm not really sure, but I know uh, right around that period. And as she gets closer to that age, it's just fun to say, hey, right around your age, I started to think about what it means to receive Christ into my life. And I've gotten to share with her, listen, when I was five or six years old, I already knew what selfishness was because I was selfish. <laughs> I can tell you what it means to have a revengeful spirit. When, when my brother or sister took something from me that didn't belong to them or smacked me, you better believe I wanted to smack them back. And so early on, I knew that there was sin deep within me, and I needed Christ in my life. And it's a wonderful thing to share it with her at that age. And so who are those people that you have an opportunity to share your faith with and share your testimony with and uh, make a difference for Christ in doing so? And so first, what is baptism? The motivation for baptism is genuine salvation, trusting in Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. Secondly, the model for baptism is always belief followed by baptism. The model all throughout Scripture is always believed followed by baptism. Let me bring you back to 36 again. It says, Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Why does he say that? Because he's believed in what Philip has declared concerning the person and work of Jesus who's died, who's risen, and who offers salvation as a free gift. Now, if you go to verse 37, you'll see if, depending on what Bible you're in, there's probably a textual note. In the NIV, it's not even mentioned, verse 37. ESV, I believe there's brackets, and then NASB, there might be brackets as well. But the reason the textual note is there is because they tell you verse 37 is probably not in the, early, probably not in the original because it's not found in the earliest manuscripts. Whether or not it's in there or not in the earliest manuscripts, it is consistent with verse 36. And not only is it consistent with verse 36, it's consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Whenever you see the model, you always see belief precedes baptism. Let me take you through the book of Acts to prove this to you. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, as Peter preaches and 3,000 are saved. It says, Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Philip, in chapter 8, as he's preaching before the multitudes, and the multitudes come to faith, it says, But when they believed, Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized, belief and then baptism, Acts 8, 12. Acts 9, 18, Paul, it says, Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, not just physical, but spiritual, and he arose and was baptized, belief and then baptism, Cornelius in 1046 to 48, then Peter answered, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Lydia, you know that seller of purple, it says in Acts 16, verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. 
The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she was persuaded us. Lydia, and then the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, verse 33. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and his family were baptized. Now, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. He rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. I go through those scriptures because the model is always belief and then baptism. Nowhere in scripture do you see someone who is baptized first and then they believe. Nowhere in scripture is we're going to talk about the mode of baptism in a moment. Do you see someone who is sprinkled, is baptized, and then later comes into the faith? Now, some people will argue and say when it comes to circumcision, circumcision was a sign of the Old Testament that you were part of the covenant community of God. They'll say when you're circumcised the eighth day, that... Uh, that is a symbol, a sign of you being part of the covenant community of God, but you make a decision later to be a part of that covenant community. And they say in the same way circumcision marks you, so under the new covenant, baptism marks you. But there's no connection to that in Scripture. That's under the old covenant. We're talking about the new covenant here. And when we're talking about baptism, we're talking about believer's baptism. And nowhere do we see sprinkling and, and then a baby being baptized and then them later coming to faith. Now, one time I had a conversation with, uh, uh, back in, I think, my seminary days, and I was working alongside of a young lady who was a Lutheran. And I took time to say, hey, I want you for a moment, because she believed in infant baptism, I want you for a moment to point me to any scripture in the Bible where we see that example. And she couldn't give me one. She ended up calling her mother on the phone, and she had her mother talk to me. And so I had this conversation with her mother, and her mother said, simply because you believe in believers baptism, because your pastor told you that. I said, well, I don't know about that. And then we had a conversation about God's word, and she said the examples that are given when you have infant baptism is where, as we read in our text today, you have the whole family being baptized. And I'd like to suggest the reason the whole family's baptized is because like the Philippian jailer, he receives Christ and then he shares Christ with the family. They believe and then they are baptized. And so all throughout scripture, if we're going to take a look at not tradition or denominational affiliation, but the authority of God's word, it's always belief and then it is baptism. And so the model is always belief followed by baptism, at least scripturally. And so... Uh, this morning, if I could give us a couple takeaways, the first one is this, getting baptized without a genuine salvation is simply getting wet. Uh, I had one experience where I baptized someone who was not saved, and it was actually intended this way, and it was the worst baptism I ever gave. Um, it was my wife. It, I was, I'll share the story with you. I, I had become a, uh, right after we got married, she was already saved. She was a Christian at this time. And, and I had just taken on a new pastorate. And I had baptized two people before, but it had been many years prior. And so I called my wife and I said, Hun, I just want to make sure I'm doing it right. So I need to prepare with you. I need to practice with you. So I called her over the night before the baptism. This was late Saturday night. And it was wintertime, so it was cold. And the water wasn't heated yet. And so I called her into the baptism. And I said, "Hun, come on in. And she came on in and she started to yell already. And I said, you need to calm down. And, and I said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I took her down, and I can tell you, as I brought her up, I've never heard anyone scream as loud as she was screaming. But that was my first chance. I needed to get two more tries in, so I dunked her a couple more times, and then we finished that off. But she was simply getting wet. It wasn't a believer's baptism. <laughs> when we're talking about the model of baptism, it's always believe and then be baptized. We're reminded that baptism is a symbol and the reality is our salvation as we are united with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, I hold, I'm holding a, a wedding ring. This is actually not my original wedding ring. It's my plastic version. And I put it on my hand. Nevertheless, it doesn't mean that I'm married or not when I take this off. It's simply the symbol. 
And it's the same way with baptism. If I can give this to one of our single folks and I give them this ring, it doesn't mean that they automatically become married if they put on this ring. No, the ring is simply a symbol. Baptism is the same way. When it comes to baptism, it's always belief first and then baptism. And so we see the model for baptism. Verse 38, we see the mode for baptism is immersion. Verse 38 says, So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. So they both go into the water, and they both go down as the eunuch is brought down and is brought up. Now, the word baptism itself is actually a transliteration of the Greek. It means, it comes from baptizo. But baptism itself literally means immersion. The word itself means immersion. And so, if someone were to say, were you baptized by sprinkling or baptized by immersion? It's similar to asking, it, asking the question, were you baptized uh, um, by immersion or baptized by sprinkling? And, and saying, were you immersed by sprinkling or were you immersed by um, immersion? It doesn't make sense. Baptism simply means immersion. It was a word, baptizo, that was used of dyeing cloth. You take a white cloth if you dyed it in red or crimson, whatever color, you would baptize it or immerse it into the dye. You pull it out, it's got a new identity. It's the picture of your union with this new identity as our union with Christ. And so the mode of baptism is immersion. The next we see the, the message of baptism is a joy-filled life. Verse 38 says, uh, or verse 39 says, Now when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. For whatever reason, Philip had fulfilled his task. He had pointed out that Isaiah 53 was talking about Christ. The eunuch responds in faith and then is baptized. He believes and is baptized, and he goes away. Philip it disappears, and he goes away rejoicing. The message of baptism is a joy-filled life in response to the transformation that Christ brings into our lives. You want to know what baptism really is? You take a look at Romans chapter 6. And in those first four verses, the question is asked, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? If you're a Christian and a believer, can I be a Christian and, and still uh, participate in an adulterous relationship? Can I be a Christian and still be a liar? Can I be a Christian and still cut corners when it comes to my business? That's the question that is presented. And in Romans 6, it says, Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Verse 2 says, Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, what that text is saying there is what baptism really is. It's an identification with Christ. It's our union with Christ in his death, his burial, and resurrection. And so the question when it comes to our new life in Christ is not, can I be a Christian and still continue to sin so that grace may abound? The real question is, why would I want to? I have a new life in Christ. I've been delivered from, these, from the slavery of my own desires, and I have the freedom to walk in the liberty that Christ has granted me. Why would I ever want to go back? You think of a guy like Lazarus who was raised from the dead. Why would he ever want to go? You know, I love those grave clothes so much. Thank you, Jesus, for raising me from the dead. But you know, Jesus, I think I'm going to go back in, and if you could wrap me up again, that would be fantastic. No, why would we ever want to go back to that? We've been redeemed. We've been set free. We have new life in Christ. And so the message of baptism is rejoicing in the new life that I have in Christ as I'm united with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. As we've already said, when you go down into the water, you're united with him in his death. You die to your sins and, your, and, and the power of sin over you and you are raised in newness of life in Christ as you are united with him. And then lastly, as we close, I would share the reminder of baptism is that there is still work to be done. 
The reminder every time we get to baptize somebody is that there's still work to be done. Verse 40 says this, but Philip was found in Azotus. Why was he found in Azotus? It says, in passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Who gets to preach in Ethiopia? It's the Ethiopian eunuch. Who gets to share Christ and him crucified there? He does. And as Philip, he continues his work as well. Every time... We have an opportunity to baptize. Next week, we're going to baptize some folks. It's going to be a wonderful, exciting time. And we're going to give God all of the glory. But as we do, we're reminded there's still work to be done. As I was reading verse 40, I had to look this up. I said, what was the world population in the first century when the Great Commission was given? In Acts 1-8 or Matthew 28, 19-20. And you get different numbers, but anywhere between 150 million and 350 million, give or take. But if you look at the population today, we're at 7.8 billion people. And the population of the earth is beginning to grow exponentially. And if you think about what the Great Commission, what we were called to do in the first century to where we are now, we get to see there's still work to be done. When you take a look at the statistics, only a third of the world's population, and we don't even know if they're genuine Christians and believers, at least a third of the population is described as Christians. Listen, Twin Rivers, there's still work to be done, both locally here in Springfield, in Lane County, in the state of Oregon, and literally to the ends of the earth. But Christ says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Every time we have a baptism, we're reminded there's still work to be done. And so we're going to go about that work. Our invitation is to believe and be baptized and share our testimony with the lost world around us. And so the motivation for baptism is always genuine salvation, a conversion. Um, the model of baptism is belief followed by baptism. The mode of baptism is always immersion. You never see sprinkling in the scripture. And the reminder of baptism is that we need to finish the task and do it together through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Can we take time to pray? Father, this morning we want to thank you and praise you for your word and for the reminder of it concerning what it has to tell us about the ordinance of baptism. We thank you for the testimony that every believer has and is invited to share through these waters of baptism. Father, this morning, I want to pray for anyone here today who has never trusted in Christ as their Savior and Lord. And having heard the gospel, having heard their need for Christ, I pray that you would convict their hearts accordingly and draw them to yourself that they would express this genuinely as possible. Father, I recognize I'm a sinner. The source of my sin is a rebellious heart against you. I know I need you, Jesus, to forgive me. I confess Jesus as my Savior and my, as my Lord. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the, the Son of God, who came to buy my salvation and to grant me everlasting life and to forgive me of sins. Father, my desire is to serve you and follow you all the days of my life. Father, if there's someone here today who has never been baptized but has believed, has had a genuine salvation, pray, Father, that you would convict their hearts accordingly to make that, take that next step and declare, make a public profession of faith of new life in Christ before their church family and anyone else who would like to hear. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would be encouraged as we head out and we pray for all those baptisms that will be happening next week. And we give you all the glory, the honor, and praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.